ministry, every minute, that's reflected in any part of the scriptures. I spoke last night with a group who were here about all Christians are called to evangelize. Uh, It's not just some people who have the gift of evangelism. If you serve the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you will serve other people in his name because that's how you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Church is not about us coming together to reach up to God. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel comes down to us that we will go out and reach other people. There's a vertical and horizontal direction in church, but it's kind of opposite to what most people think. God speaks to us the great gospel of salvation, which we're to take out. And we're to serve one another. So you can think of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Each one comes with something and you know, let each one do it, provided it's done in an orderly or edifying way. Or Romans chapter 12 uh, speaks again of the different uh, gifts that God... And if to each one is given a gift, inasmuch as you're given the gift, use it for the good. Or again in 1 Peter chapter 4, some are given the gifts of speech. If he speaks, let him speak the words of God. And if he serves, let him serve. But we've got to get all our partners active in the gospel and the gospel ministry using the varying gifts that God has given them. And so that's a a model of pastoral ministry. I'm going to give you the wisdom of hindsight because there's a whole set of things. I'm going to tell you how I did what I did. And it's not because I've done something wonderful. It's because God has done something wonderful through me. And afterwards I look back and said, oh, look, wasn't I clever? You see? And, but it's, it's all hindsight. It's, at the end of the day, I worked out what it was we were doing, uh, which I can pass on to you so you can do it beforehand and say, aren't we clever? Uh, which, frankly, I wasn't very. Um, I started off with the wrong model of ministry altogether. I started off with a therapeutic model of ministry. That is, I was the doctor, the spiritual doctor. It's a long history to speak in those terms, I may say. Uh, in fact, in Anglican Episcopal terms, you, you're called to the cure of souls, uh, as if you are a doctor. And so I preach sermons, and when people have problems, they come and talk to me, and I pass to them. Now, It's not biblical, it's not right, and it doesn't work, just to mention a few problems. Um, The the word pastor means shepherd of the flock. It does not mean personal worker. That's a misuse of the language. Um, I can give you the Greek about it. The the Greek word for sheep is not the same as the word for shepherd. You can hear sheep and shepherd in English, it's the same word. But there's a word for flock in Greek. And the word for shepherd comes out of the word from flock. So really what pastors are are flockists. Uh, they, they look after flocks. They don't look after sheep. But we've got the word pastor to mean individual, personal worker, which then encourages you to be a therapeutic model. You, know, you personally work with people who've got problems and you leave the 99 to go and chase after the one which is in the Bible, it's in Luke 15, but it's not about how to be a pastoral worker. It's about how to have joy in heaven. It's it's a misuse of the passage, really. But um, we've got it all wrong. The pastor is the leader of the flock. A shepherd who only has one sheep has a very limited future in the world of sheep looking after. You know, you need at least two to get a third. You know, I mean, I don't know if that's the case here, but just one sheep, that's a poor shepherd. Uh, you've actually got to have a flock that you're leading. 
and you are engaged in the leadership of this flock. Now, the way to get to do is get them all active. That's, that's critical. And don't approach them on the basis of problems. You, it, when you do that, it, it doesn't work for lots of reasons. If, if the pastor's any good at sorting out individual problems, more and more people will come and see him. The more people who come and see him with personal problems, the less work he does for the flock as a whole. Every time I'm preparing a sermon, I spend an hour on the sermon, I'm spending, what do you got, 900 people? 900 hours work. Every time I talk to one person, I'm doing one hour's work. So to take my mind off the 900 hours in order to do the one hour, it has to have a high priority. That, that's, uh, it's just uh, the mechanics of how you do your job, you see. So when you build it like that, when you build the ministry, if you're successful, you'll have a long string of people coming to see you. It makes the pastor feel really good because he's looking, he's helping all these people. But actually, in the long run, it doesn't help them because the only way you can get to talk to your pastor is if you have a problem. So the last thing you want is your problem solved because once your problem's solved, you can't talk to your pastor anymore. And if it is solved, you invent another one. And don't get me wrong, but there are lots of Christian friends who invent problems in order to be able to be on the inn with a pastor. And so the church is then built about problems. This is a problem-solving place rather than about the Lord Jesus Christ and going forwards. And so in a land of psycho-bubble like America, you, you, you're really creating a monster once you have a therapeutic model. Now I did it and it failed, right? Failed miserably. And so I, I want to tell you how I met up with a man who had a different model altogether. He was a navigator. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't uh, trained for ministry in the ways I was. He was trained for doing single, individual work. But the navigator, you know the navigators? You know memory verse, Bible, study, navigators, one-to-one -one ministry. Some of you looking like you don't know about them. Well, that's all right. I'm not going to give you the history of them. But his whole approach to life was finding one person and discipling them properly for six months, 12 months, and then the two of them going and finding two other blokes and discipling them, and then four of them. And it was that kind of build the pyramid, uh, which is very powerful, very strong. And you don't pick on people who've got problems. In fact, you're never bothered with people's problems. You only pick on people who don't have problems and you develop them. That's one of the errors on their side of the coin because everybody's got problems ultimately. Um, but you build this whole discipleship model. Now he and I, for various reasons, came together and we didn't understand each other, but we knew we loved the same Lord and we wanted the same gospel preached. And he couldn't believe how I ministered and I couldn't believe how he ministered, but we worked together. And in working together, there was a creative tension between us. Every issue he started from one-to-one -one discipleship, every issue I started from big crowds, every issue he started from making healthy people go forward, every issue I was starting from making unhealthy people catch up. Just a different mindset. But out of 25 years of working together, we came up with the trellis and the vine. Well, he came up with it. I didn't write it. Um, but that's Cole Marshall, who I don't know if he's come to you yet, but uh, certainly his book has come to many of you. And that was Cole Marshall. That's how he got into... And he came to appreciate preaching, and I certainly came to appreciate disciple-making. And so it's not my great wisdom, but I tell you the history in this little set of... Uh, of, of let's see if I can do it. Uh, 
I've, I've done these in the plane uh, coming over and things like that. So whether this works or not, we're about to find out, my friends. Now, you had it all beautifully set up earlier. It was all kind of... I'm going I'm to try where I can see the one that's coming and the one that's not and all kinds oh, yeah, of here things. We go. I think it's this one right here. Play there, eh? Excellent. Let's see if it goes. You there see? it is. See? The art of all good electronic things. Find a man younger than yourself. Right? Have grandchildren. That's my clue. Okay, the grandkids, they're just brilliant, aren't they? So, we start off with the pastor. The pastor of a congregation is a critical element of the, of the whole thing, right? And what his job is, is to, buy, is to prayerfully expound and, and evangelistically expound the Bible. That's his job. And that big rectangle is fundamental to the whole ministry. Almost everything else I'm going to show you will work for the local Boy Scouts Association. It'll work for the Girl Guides. It'll work for what's another kind of thing that you, you know, the, the local soccer team. <laughs> yes, it would work for the Masons, right? And so you must put, you must see that fundamental work that he's doing because he's got to look after, with the Bible, the whole flock. He must lead you by the Word of God. If he's leading you by anything else than the Word of God, he's not doing the work of a shepherd. So it's really important. He's out front teaching you what God says. That's really the most important picture has already come up. The trouble is, once you see the other stuff, it gets exciting and you forget this one. So halfway through, I'll come back to it. Okay, there's a newcomer that comes to church. So here they are. Here's the newcomer that's at church. Uh, you see, when I first invented this, I put NH, someone who needs help. See the, the therapeutic model? You don't see someone who needs There isn't. A newcomer does need help, don't they? They need help in integration. But change the language, a newcomer. Yeah. And so the pastor ministers to the newcomer. And what he tries to do is get him into a group. Now, I don't know what your groups are called. We used to call ours prayer and Bible groups. So that's why they're P and B groups, prayer and Bible groups. What do you call home groups, cell groups? Small groups. Small groups. Because the small groups is where the sheep are looked after and where the sheep look after each other as they study the word together and as they integrate and it's really important that not only does the pastor pastor them by them hearing the Bible out front but that each other pastor each other in the groups in which they come. In some ways it's the back door. It, it keeps the sheep in, in the fold is to have them there. And so uh, he keeps pastoring and the more work he puts in to newcomers the more people get into the prayer and Bible group. But of course, there comes a limited element. The more people come, the fewer he can do, because how many people can a one shepherd chase into small groups? Especially seeing he's got to be preaching the Bible to everybody all the time. And so, there's a great breakthrough for me, enormous breakthrough, is when I accepted Cole's proposition that that was not the fundamental of the work. That what you've got to do is the pastor has to train people in ministry. That was the huge breakthrough. It, it's one of those things that, you know, once you've seen it, it's so dead obvious, you think, gee, that was not so profound as to worth talking about. But it really is the key. Because training in ministry is more than just running a course. Training in ministry is 
helping people do a task. If I could just put it into language, teaching is teaching people something, training is helping people learn how to do it. I could explain to you how to saw a piece of timber. You know, you've got to keep breathing, don't hold your breath, you've got to keep your fingers out of the way. But to train someone in sawing a piece of timber, I've got to have a saw and a piece of timber and say, now you try a bit and I'll try it and I'll show you how it's training in ministry. And when you train in ministry, who, who are they going to do it with? Well, the obvious people to do it with, you see, is, what have I done? Is to take some people out of the prayer and Bible group and for the pastor to spend less time chasing newcomers. Okay, so I've actually reduced the number of the arrows from the pastors to, ah, up, 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 let me get back to where we were. Oh, now I know where it is now because you showed me. It's up there, isn't it? There we go. And so I've reduced the number of arrows because you can't just add arrows onto the pastor's workload. He's got to take something off. So when he starts doing training in ministry, see the arrow disappears? And he takes people out of the prayer and Bible groups to do the training. You don't wait till you get more newcomers. Training precedes activity. So how many Sunday school teachers should you train for next year? As many as you can. Because the more that you've got trained, the more Sunday school classes you can run. But if you wait for more people to come and then say, oh, well, now we're going to train Sunday school teachers, it's too late. So we always just train ahead of time. And you train them on newcomers. That is, I take one out and I show them how to visit a newcomer and how to talk to them and incorporate them in. And then I get them to do it themselves. Well, now we've we start to actually increase the number of people because there's an increased number of people doing the work. And so as long as I'm training people like that, I'm getting more work done. Now, what do I train them in? I want everybody to use their gifts, which means I've got to do 65,000 different training courses. Now, the key training in Christian ministry is convictions, and character and the gospel. The competencies, the, the skills, that comes later and that's individualistic. You see, a piano player plays the piano, that's his skill. I can't train someone in how to play the piano, I've got no idea. But I can train a Christian musician by making sure that from his heart he's doing it in service of the congregation and that he understands where music fits into the framework of Christian gathering. That is training him in piano playing. Because pianists are all trained by our world to be performers. Whereas a Christian pianist is an accompanist. That's a different art form. That's a different skill. You, 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 your aim as a Christian pianist is to help the congregation sing better rather than show off your skills. And that comes about from a conviction and from a character. And so we're training them in fundamentals. Well, what's the fundamental I want to train them in? The gospel and doing one-to-one -one ministry and following up new Christians. So we've created a set of courses that I want all the congregation members to be trained in. Uh, the one we've used is Two Ways to Live, which is a catechism on the gospel. Now, I'm an Episcopalian, I know you don't believe it because you think I'm a Christian and now you've got doubts whether I am a Christian because I'm an Episcopalian. But 
It's a long story, but Sydney being a convict colony meant that no uh, high churchmen would come where we were. And Sydney was founded by evangelicals. And so Wilberforce and John Newton uh, got the first minister of the gospel, first gospel preaching in, first clergyman in Australia was an evangelical. And they followed that up because they worked through the colonial secretariat to make sure that all the early uh, Anglican ministers in Australia were, were evangelicals. And we got a lot of correspondence between England and Australia from William Wilberforce and John Newton, the amazing grace man. They saw us as one of their special little mission fields. So Sydney's weird, right? No, that's all right. I love it. Uh, and you should. It's gospel people, you say. So in, now, why was I telling you about Anglicanism? Um, uh, I can't remember why I told you that little bit of Anglicanism or carried away with Wilberforce. Um, uh, in, in our, uh, I'll just pick back here. In our training, you see, yes, I know why. In our catechism, we've got a Reformation catechism. And it's all about the sacraments. That's not our problem today. We, we don't have that as a real problem. Our problem is the gospel. No one knows the gospel. So two ways to live is a new catechism built on the gospel. We teach people six great doctrinal truths. Creation, uh, sin, judgment, atonement, resurrection, repentance and faith. They're the six great doctrines that we catechise our congregation on. But we catechise them on a way of explaining the gospel to non-Christians. How do we evangelise your friends using these six great doctrines by drawing out these pictures? Have we all seen Two Ways to Live or not? Yes? No? Hands up those who have not seen it. Okay. I'll see if we can get to that. So I train everybody in Two Ways to Live. And then, just for starters, there's seven basic Bible studies you'd use with a new Christian. Now, that's an easier course than evangelising the non-Christians. So we generally start with the easier one. And here are Bible studies, so that if you sat down next to someone and said, do you ever read the Bible? And they say, no. You say, oh, I've got a set of Bible studies. What Would you like me to do it with you? Now, it's much easier to do that than to go out to an out-and-out non-Christian and try and explain the gospel. But once people get the confidence to do one-to-one -one ministry on the easier, then we take them to the slightly harder. So we've got these two basic training modules. One is one-to-one -one Bible study using Just for Starters, and the other is Two Ways to Live, which catechises the congregation. So everybody's on that training program. And then we get them to practice it with newcomers. <laughs> You meet up with a newcomer who's not a Christian, you've got two ways to live to share the gospel with him. You meet up with a newcomer who is a Christian, you've got just for starters to sit and do Bible study with him. And in the process of doing one-to-one -one Bible study, you shuffle him into a Bible study group, a prayer and Bible group. And then you go back and get the next newcomer. So, seeing I know now how to do this, there we go. So, there is what we're doing in the training in ministry, and you see, we... Don't do anything here really well. I've gone too fast for it, poor thing. You dear little thing. Oh, how dreadful it is for you. Let me try it again. I'm sorry, my friends. Here we go. So I'm taking them out of the prayer and Bible groups into my training program to reach newcomers, to reach more people with a prayer and Bible group.
Okay? There is an activity. However, and that has a growth factor into it because we will meet more people and follow up more people in the church if we do that. I've got to keep going at its speed, apparently, to be able to do this. Can that possibly be true? Yes. It fails at that point every time. Why is that? We move out of technology onto a whiteboard? Any idea, Chris? Hmm? Sorry? Uh, there is something. That, sorry? Any idea on why that... <laughs> why does it keep closing down on me, bro? See, you're doing everything right. Thank you. Rubbish. What if we went right to this? Okay, well that's the next step I want to go to, so... There we go. Now, how do you keep training people in ministry? How do you keep people doing it? And the answer is... <laughs> whiteboard. 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 Just whiteboard. The answer is by becoming... <laughs> you can't train me in this. Okay. Let's pull out and go for whiteboard. The answer is by being self-starters, but that's going to take me... Time to... Can I pull just here? Yeah, just Okay. Hey. That's the great thing. Teaching the Bible. That's the great work the pastor has to do. Right? In reaching the newcomers, getting them into prayer and Bible groups. But now I've taken some of them out and I'm reducing the amount of work I'm doing there and putting them into training and ministry, which puts them up there, which increases the amount of work there. Okay? All on board where we're up to? Now, how do I keep them doing this? The answer is to make them into self-starters. Now, we define self-starter very carefully. A self-starter is someone who, when they leave us, will continue a Christian, will join a church, and will start ministering without being asked to. The last bit, of course, is the key to self-starters. So when someone comes and joins this church, you know, they wait for you to invite them to do something. But if they come from us as self-starters, you'll suddenly find there's a bloke in the fourth row who's inviting people to study the Bible with him. Because that's just what he does. You see, he's a self-state. He doesn't wait for you to ask him to do anything. He just starts ministering anywhere he goes. That's the kind of Christian we want to produce, is self-starters. Now, how do you produce self-starters? How do you... The key is to get them to train people in ministry. Any of you in the medical fraternity? No, I'll tell you how doctors are trained. There's three steps. One, watch one. Two, do one. Three, teach one. So they watch an appendix operation, they do an appendix operation, and then they teach an appendix operation. Because if they watch it, they don't know how to do it. If they do it, they know how to do it, but they're soon going to forget. If they teach it, they always remember how to do it. It's the teaching which enables you to do it, you see. And so you want to train self-starters, you get them to train people in ministry. 
Now, to do that, the pastor has to do less work up here because he's now got to spend more time down there. But he will train more people in ministry than just you can do by yourself, which means, therefore, more people are being helped there, which means more people are being helped here. So this system has a multiplier effect in it. Those of you who know anything on economics, it's about multiplication, multiplier systems. By training in ministry, I'm multiplying this. See, that's got a growth factor in it. By doing this, I've really got a growth factor in it. The more self-starters who are training people in ministry, the more newcomers can be met and the more they're shoved into small groups. The minister is still doing the same amount of work, but he's no longer just working with newcomers. He's doing some newcomers, but basically training in ministry and really looking after the self-starters. Now, in one sense, they don't need as much looking after because they are self-starters. But in another sense, if he doesn't keep with them, the whole thing doesn't hold together. He's, he's, he's got to maintain, maintain that. All the time, doing this work. Because this is the important work. You see what I mean? All this infrastructure, that could be done by the Boy Scouts. <laughs> That's how to grow your Boy Scouts group or your soccer group. But the, it's just how to make a system work, a voluntary organisation work for you. But if he's doing it in the context of the teaching of the world, of the word, then it's working for the gospel that we're involved in. All right? And so we've got the courses. That's why Matthias Media is coming to existence. Matthias Media is, is not a publishing house per se. Matthias Media publishes tools to help people who minister get the job done. I mean, we, can put, we can publish books, but there's, a, there's millions of books. Making of books is no end. You know, I mean, it's just another book, another book. We produce Bible study materials, materials on how to lead Bible studies. A wonderful book called uh, Growth Groups, which shows you how to be a Bible study leader, how to be a home group leader. Um, uh, interactive Bible studies to give you materials if you are a home leader to do Bible studies with us. Uh, uh, how to welcome people to church, uh, the, the ministry of the pew. It's all the tools that, for people who want to minister. That's, that's what Matthias Media is aimed at producing rather than producing books. And we don't, we aim to, to, to pay for ourselves but we don't aim to make profit. It's a not-profit organisation. It's a ministry assistance organisation. And so, you know, it's, that's the nature of it, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, before I... There's a whole second stage to this, but do you want to ask questions about that so far? Where are we going? Yeah. Self-starters. Those mm -hmm. are Christian disciples. Yes, makers. and they're disciple makers. Right. By this stage, they're disciples. By this stage, they're disciple makers. Right. So the more I can get down there, the more we're making. Yeah. They're usually the aggressive people. How do you control them? By the pastor stays in yep. direct contact with them? Yeah. Uh, no, we don't want aggressive people. We want very Christian people. Because the heart of our training is convictions and character rather than skills. So some very entrepreneurial people, they're sitting up there. <laughs> then, then they haven't been invited into this program to become members of this, uh, you know. 
it's not just aggressive. There was a woman in the church who was a piano teacher and an organist and really quite gifted. Never once did I ever let her touch the organ or the piano because gifted and capable she was, she was a monster. <laughs> she was a, a control freak in the extreme and I knew that if she ever touched any musical instrument she would take over and no one else would ever be allowed to touch that instrument and although she was most likely competently the best organist in the church, to her enormous frustration she was never asked to touch it. It just would have been a disaster. The character and the conviction is just more important than the skill. Just to clarify terms, yeah. Um, yes, please do. Please translate for us wherever possible. Uh, Self-starter is someone who you said start, will start a ministry or um, hmm. without being asked. Will start ministering. Start ministering. And that's the key to understand that is it's not a, it's not a program, it's uh, people. They will start ministering to people. Ministering to people. That's right. So just make sure we're clear. Yep, thank you. Get the former. Yes, the we, person that has an idea for a... To start a new system. No, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. That's very important clarification. See, I saw a self-starter once join our church. What did I see? James. I was sitting there at the end of church talking with... We serve coffee right in the church building. And I'm sitting there talking with someone over a cup of coffee. And I see this new bloke. He's, a, you know, he's been once before. And what's he doing? He's walking around picking up the, the hymn books and putting them back in the cupboard over there. And he's cleaning up and tidying up the, 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 the pews and straightening the chairs. And I thought, you know, that's what our regular members should be doing. Who's this bloke who's doing that and why is he doing it? So I leave off this conversation and head over to him. And he's a man who ministers. <laughs> he's not setting up a ministry. He just is a servant-hearted man who didn't know anybody in the church. So he didn't have anybody particularly to talk to. And so he thought he'd do what would be helpful. Well, he's gold, isn't he? You know, the more, I mean, that is just the person you want to join you. And uh, he, he was indeed gold. He's a terrific fellow. Uh, I'm curious, two questions. One, yeah. bloke, is that always a guy? Bloke, that's always a guy. No, no, I'm going to give bloke S's in a moment, but okay. yeah. <laughs> so now in this process, is it, is it linear in the sense that as my, my newcomers get bigger, my groups then get bigger, and then the TM gets bigger, and then the SS gets bigger, or can I, can I kind of get bigger in other blocks? Do I have to follow that process? No, each one of them, each one of them as it grows can feed in the other one. So, okay. but the one to start with is this one. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that kicks the growth off. Okay. So yeah. I can add more self-starters before I get more newcomers. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, you, you, you train before you need to. Training comes first. The consequence of training comes second. I know it's back to front thing. It's, it's counterintuitive. But over and over again, churches, you know, they see some growth and then they realise they haven't got the resources to look after the growth. And of course, what happens is the growth drops off. So we create the resources ready for the growth. And what we found was, if you have the resources ready for the growth, the growth happens. Because a family joins church, they want their children to be looked after, and the church has no one to look after their children, and so they drift off to another church. But if you've already trained children's workers ready to go, who haven't got anything to do, and a family turns up with children, you can say, oh, here you are. And you retain them. I understand that under that 
scenario though, the, the newcomers, what do you do to feed those in? Because at some point that, that funnel may just stop if you're not going out to reach newcomers. What's feeding the newcomers in or what's bringing them in? Uh, yeah, that's going to be different at every church. Okay. Yeah. But conceivably another block you have there? Uh, you can see them What brings newcomers into your church? Well, it can be you inviting them in. It can be there's new people in the suburb. It can be that you're starting up a new program. Okay. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm just assuming newcomers are coming. Okay. For different reasons. No, I'm just thinking because mm -hmm. yeah. as we build the, the TM more and more, we need people to train. So that's why I didn't know part of the training actually talks about discipleship to get the people. Well, yes, I mean, the training in ministry can be to go out in the streets and find people to bring in. Yeah, okay. Sure. Okay. In fact, one of the, the evangelism and the two ways to live, we do have programs of going out to people. And you go down the shopping mall and you just try and share the gospel with strangers. What we found is strangers rarely get converted. But... The people who share with strangers see their friends converted. And the people who don't share with strangers don't see their friends converted. Now why is that? Humanly speaking, it's because once you've actually started talking the gospel evangelistically with strangers, when your friend says, uh, what's this Christianity business? You know what to say. <laughs> but if you've never spent any time ever saying it to anybody, when your friend says, what's this Christianity business? You say, oh, yeah, well, it's something I'm interested in. <laughs> and you just don't actually follow through with a good gospel presentation. Uh, two Ways to Live gives you a good gospel presentation and confidence to do it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> one of the things, how do we produce self-starters? Let me give you an example. Yeah. Yep. I teach, I've taught home Bible studies for years and years at home. Can't ever get them to move off that center. They want to come, listen, fellowship, be ministered to, but don't want to move out of that comfort zone. Men's ministry, teaching, uh, trying to discipleship and be with them and everything. Trying to get those men to go out and be another self-starter to grow that group. I find that the most difficult, and I don't think that, personally, I don't really know that I'm doing that correctly. So how do we produce yep. self-starters? Or is that somebody that just happens to have that no. attribute? No. Anybody can be brought, be brought into a self-starting. But it's one-to-one -one training with those people. So my brother here has been in the Bible study group with me forever and a day, but he's never actually got off his bottom and done anything. I say, okay, this, sorry, <laughs> man, this, this time... Yeah, Pastor Rick. <laughs> this time, you and I are going to lead the study together. We'll prepare it together, but you're going to lead it next next week, and then I'll talk to you about it afterwards. And for the next six months, we're going to. I'll do one, you do one. I'll do one, you do one. But we'll prepare together. It's very labour intensive, mm -hmm. but if after six months he's confident, we've now got two groups, <laughs> and he can run one. But if I just think, oh well, somehow I'll throw it to him, and he'll just be able to do it. Well, they freak out and they won't do it. So it's, it's, it's very labour-intensive at the beginning. So the first time I did Two Ways to Live, I trained 160 undergraduates in... Uh, no, nah, I've forgotten the figure. Something like 150 undergraduates in six weeks. And Cole Marshall, he said to me, Philip, I guarantee in six months none of them are using it. 
And I said, no, Col, you don't know how to do these things. So I did it. And then six months later, I checked around and nobody was using it. So tail between legs, I returned back to Col and say, well, why is that? And he says, because you haven't trained any of them, you taught them. You've got to train them. So he said, you just find the one best one and you and I, I'll bring one and the four of us will train. And so then we just trained a really good one. Now, it only took six weeks of training because he was a really good one. But at the end of that, we then had four of us training, four more. And over three or four years, we had a large numbers. But you've got you've to invest in people individually in this training. You have to actually kind of nudge that person off. For yep. instance, if you had a group of men, four yep. guys meet on Wednesday morning, yep. they study together, they go through God's Word, they yep. do it, and they've done it for years. Yeah, that's Same this way. box. That's this box. The other, the, nobody's moving off at that center yep. to go off and get four more guys. No, you've got to find one of those four and say, you and I are going to meet lunch. We're going to meet breakfast in two days' time. And in that... I'm going to teach you how to teach the Bible. We're going to go through growth groups together, you know, that course. And then in a few weeks' time, I'm going to get you to lead the study with the four blokes. And I'm going to sit in on, you know, and watch how you do it. But unless I intentionally kind of train him and lift him up, it's not going to happen. And so it might take a year, three months with each of these guys to get them active. But just to keep... Uh, serving them is not ultimately serving them. You know, I'm getting them as members, not partners. And we kind of wind up serving each other in some situations. Yeah. Like that, yeah. Like it. Yeah. Together, and it feels good. And yeah. And if you ask, and if you're leading it, you feel satisfied because you're doing something. I, I love teaching more than I like learning, so it makes me feel good. So therefore, I leave the blokes not teaching because I'm feeling good teaching them. They feel good because they don't have to do anything. But it's not actually helping. That's what I was going to say. I found myself years ago teaching Bible studies. I'm studying all week. I'm learning. I teach it. They listen and they go off and they're not doing anything about it. You, like you say, you have to pick somebody that's showing something. Yep. Pull them in and, and have them study and learn because you could teach every day for a year and they're never going to walk away. And That's right. you got to teach them to study. That's right. And so, you know, think of the doctor medal. I'm teaching them. I've got to get them to do it. And then I've got to get them to teach somebody else to do it. Now they're studying and learning. And then I can leave them alone because they're, yeah, they're doing what I was doing. Replicating myself all the time if I can. Philip, I'm trying to sort through some of the primary differences between that center block, the training block, and the self-starters block. Um, so I'm training them to do it. Yep. They are training other people to do it. Yep. So I'm training them to train, whereas this time I'm just training. Yep. And some of the content may or may not overlap. I mean, oh, yeah, the content. Or, yeah, that's, well, that's, that's, that's I teach them two ways to live. Yep. Now they're teaching other people two ways to live. Yep. But once they teach people two ways to live, they'll always use it for the rest of their life. Because yep. it becomes their, it's theirs then. They own it in a way that is quite different. So do you think that part of the breakdown for some of our churches is that 
we're not discerning enough about the content that we're teaching. Yeah. It's one thing to say, this is God's word, we believe it all, it's all profitable in the right season. Mm. But it's a very different thing to say that some of it is more profitable for where you are in your Christian walk right now, and we need to focus on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you, I think that's where we fall down a lot, yeah. just to be honest with you. I mean, uh, you can teach people that, to, to recite the genealogy of Genesis 5 if you want to. Right. But I'd much rather teach Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Right, right. You know, it's, it's not... So the, the Pharisees, it, it, it's Jesus in uh, Matthew 23. You know, you, you strain out the gnat and, and swallow the camel. Right. There is camel scripture and there is gnat scripture. Yeah. And I want them, through this process of the training, to be able to recite what is really the fundamental. Yeah. And that's why the catechism is on the gospel. So, um, is it the pastor's role to oversee or to at least hold some sort of accountability to the self-starters? In this, you know, I think it's great, but you could see how um, doctrine or things could get diluted or watered down or just making sure that the self-starters are training the right things for the, team, the, the TM box. Is that the pastor's role to make sure that they're teaching the right things? It's... I different uh, church traditions have different responsibilities between pastors and, and elders and that kind of thing but for me uh, the pastor is responsible for the flock as a whole okay. uh, the, the, I think the buck sticks with the pastor now what the accountability relationship is of the pastor and the elders well that uh, I don't know what your, your process is here um, but yes what is taught <laughs> In all of this, ultimately, it's the pastor's role to make sure that it's the truth. Now, if you have really good, trained Bible study leaders, you may let them teach whatever they want to. But if the leaders are not someone who you can trust that extent, then you say, okay, well, we're all going to study this set of studies this month. There's different ways for the pastor to make sure that there's an integrity in it. But my experience is this whole thing, if, if set up properly, uh, gives more uniformity and, not uniformity, more agreement in the content than a blank check kind of just a box that he preaches in. When you preach with a box but you don't have any infrastructure of teaching, because this has got nothing to do with administrative bureaucracy, it's got everything to do with active ministry of the word, it's got to do with the people you see. And by putting everybody into two ways to live training, we now have a common view of what the gospel is across the congregation. Mm -hmm. And you've got to make sure that two ways to live is theologically right, otherwise you're really teaching everybody to be wrong. <laughs> right? This is the problem with the hymns we sing and the songs we sing. You know, if you don't actually control the words of the songs, you wind up teaching everybody false doctrine, which is what Arius did. Um, but if you do teach everyone the right doctrines, etc., and the right process, then this gives a, an agreement in what the gospel is and how we minister it. That's what it creates it. Yeah. One of the things you said earlier about, <coughs> I forget what you said, whether it's learning or teaching, there's a difference between... Teaching and training. You can show me how to cut off the board. Yep. Okay? Teaching and training. But I watched you cut the board, and I'm going to go home and try it myself. Yeah. You, re you didn't really train me. No. 
And I think one of the things that I'll speak for myself personally is that is that yes, I've learned and listened to. If I sat in class week after week and listened to you teach, and then I, I can teach now. Hmm. But you really haven't taught me how to teach. No. So I'm out there teaching like an idiot. Yeah. Because I don't know really what. I'm how doing. to? That's right. And I'm making a fool of myself. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of us who maybe have taught, maybe just sit under the the leadership of a good teacher to teach us to teach. Mm. You know mm. what I'm saying? Am That's I right. Making any sense? Yeah, yeah. So because I, I can go and listen to teachers. Yep. And they go, oh, you know, I'm no, no. I'm a self-starter. So our leaders for these groups, wrong. our leaders for these home groups, you see, we we get them in training in ministry. Right? And their particular thing we want them to do is become a home group leader rather than being a music director or a children's worker, a home group leader. What we do there is, remember this is the ideal, I'm 10,000 miles from home, I can say anything, you know, it's just brilliant, it always works perfectly without taking into account human oddities and eccentricities. What we do there is we have uh, a couple leading a group, a man leads the group, his wife or whoever is assisting, and for 12 months, we get the trainee couple in the group as well. So for 12 months, they work with an experienced couple in watching and talking to them about how we run this home group. With a view to the next year, they'll be doing it by themselves. The year after that, they'll be experienced and they'll have a couple working with them. So we keep on expanding the number of group leaders by constantly picking on the trainees and putting them in 12 months in a group, learning with a couple of experience in how to be doing it. So we're always multiplying the number of home group leaders, which then means we can always multiply the number of home groups we're running because we've got the leaders to do it. Now, one of the things with, how long, do you break up your groups every year or do you keep the same group over years? Break them up every year. Yeah, okay. Because one of the other ways of doing it is, every month you start a newcomers group well for to do that you've got to have 12 leaders ready to go <laughs> so that because it's easier for newcomers to join a new group than it is to join an existing group but there's lots of ways of skinning cats so i'm told so yeah now earlier we we agreed that um people have problems everybody has problems so in this process with people in each of those blocks have problems, how, how, does, how do we fix the stifling of the process with all the problems? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why this is beautiful, yeah. thousands of miles away from home, because I'm just dealing with kind of numbers yep. instead of real people. It's never this neat and simple. But if you don't have a model to which you're working, then you're overwhelmed by the individualism of it. But if you've got a model that you're working with, you can actually see where you're going. But yeah, it's always messy. Um, and, but this is preemptive on problems. When I was doing a problem-centered therapeutic ministry, the number of problems increased. When we did a disciple-making ministry, the number of problems decreased because it was proactive and preemptive and people didn't have to have problems to relate to each other they were doing things. I sailed on Sydney Harbour one summer 
at the end of the summer I found out the bloke who was the captain of the little ship we were on didn't know anything about sailing but I didn't know that before because anyway when the wind doesn't blow and you're sitting out there in the harbour you fight with each other when the wind is really blowing and you're just hanging on for all, all of life to be able to keep the ship going no one fights with anybody and so there's a sense that sitting around doing nothing creates problems actively doing things the problems become much easier because they get a perspective about it. But I want to move to the second half of the, the model, if that's all right. You see, it's as you train people in ministry, you discover something else. You discover some people actually are very gifted in doing it. Now, you can't see, see, I look at you, which one of you is a really good home group leader? Well, from the look of you, I haven't got the faintest clue. One of you could be the greatest in the world. One of you could be complete. No, I can't just for that. How will I ever see who is good? There's only one way. That's by sitting you with you while you do it. You know, I mean, even if we talk about the theory of it, you just get a better talker. <laughs> it's when I see you doing it that I think, gee, he's really gifted. And so in the process of training people, you see the blokes worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that's when you see the blokesses who are worth watching as well. Blokes and blokesses, right? Worth watching. You don't use the word blokes. No. Ah, it's a good, good word. You Take watch, it. Uh, ah, okay. You see the blokes worth watching. And they're the ones that we then take into, well, for us it's called the ministry training st uh, strategy, an apprenticeship, a two year come and do full-time ministry with us on our church, uh, an internship, uh, I don't know what the word is that you intern, yeah. right? That we take them on board and really put two years in their lives into really spending time training them. We then put them into our theological college, which is uh, more theological college, but wherever it is, after that, before they go to seminary, we spend them in active ministry. Because then they don't go to seminary in order to learn, they go into seminary in order to equip themselves for ministry. Which Eggheads. They have an idea what that's, about. that's right. They've done it. They've been, and we've seen who they are. And some of them, we thought they were blokes worth watching, but when they did it full time for a couple of years, we said, you know what? You should go back to being a butcher. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, not bad. There's only one in 20, but one in 20 we find we've misjudged. Really, and that's a good thing to find before they spend lots of money, time and effort training themselves for something they're never going to be able to do. Mm. It's good for the church, good for them. So that's, those two years are really important years. But before we take them on there, they're committed to go here. That's the default. It's not come and try for a couple of years and see. It's come and do it. And then we say to them, no. <laughs> Oh, that seminary, is that something your church uh, equips teachers and does that? Yeah, in, in the Episcopal Church in Australia, in Sydney, uh, we have this terrific seminary, which is, they're all Bible-believing, ministry-minded lecturers training people for ministry. I mean, it's just, God is, God, Australia's very pagan, uh, we don't have superficial Christianity anymore. We don't have nominal Christianity anymore. If you're a Christian in Sydney, it's because you are. And therefore, we have really good seminaries, which is weird, you see, because you've got really crummy seminaries and thousands of Christians. We've got very few Christians and really good seminaries. But it's controlled by your churches. Yes, it's an Anglican seminary, yes. 
Yeah, yep. so their system it's is much model. different. There's yeah. a, it's a hierarchical system, whereas ours is autonomous. Sure. Yours is autonomous, ours is relational. The hierarchy is the layman's the most important person and the bishop's the most unimportant. It's the reverse of what you would expect. It's not like England. England's dreadful. Silly bishops <laughs> running around there. Uh, we, we, we're pure. Now, from that, uh, I know this is theory, but it's actually not theory because I can show you. England, yeah, let's wrap yeah. Uh, uh, story for another day. Yeah. From this, it, it looks like a theory that couldn't happen, but it actually has happened quite a few times. Coming out of Moore College, they go into full-time ministry and decide to plant a church, call it a plant here, and some of our self-starters have gone and joined them. Right? Now, what we have now then is two streams. This is the, the development of our church. This is the spread of the church outside. This is our contribution to the wider work of the gospel. And this is the growth of our own church, which hopefully is a gospel church. So they're both gospel growth, but this is the internal growth. This is the external department. This is the self-paid uh, tent maker ministries. This is the paid for, financially paid for, full-time ministries that we've got. So... Our, co our commitment to training others for the world mission uh, has always been very high, but that's because we were connected to a university in particular. So that, that, that's why we developed it and that's why we're biased in that direction. We had lots of young men in our church who should give up their small ambitions and go out into the world to preach the gospel. So, but where we found them was there. We put hundreds into full-time Christian ministry. Uh, but we're a university church. A university church should do that. You're a family church. That's a different thing. But you still can find the people. Now, maybe instead of finding them here, you may need to be importing them in to come and do a training course here. Or you might be trying to train people coming out of seminary for two years in how to do the ministry. Every church is different. You're in a different location, different situation, etc. I'm just showing the model we did. <laughs> You kind of work out which bits of it you want to pinch. It's free of charge. <laughs> Give it to you, you know. You don't have to kind of put any copyright signs on it and all the rest of it because we're not interested in that. You know, I don't get royalties for any of the stuff I write for Matthias Media because we're not interested in it. We're interested in gospel ministry and helping people. That's what we did. All right? And that second side of it is really important for sharing the gospel. And... All this church, all these people, have a great commitment to some of these people. Right? And so it's easy to pray for missionaries when they used to be members of your church working on your staff. It's, you know, the focus of praying for them ten times easier because you've seen them, you know them. I think just a note for the group to, to think through. Um, in a lot of ways, in a, in a, in a, small, in a small way, we've We've already started doing some of this. And if you look at the last four or five years, primarily of Marty's ministry, but also as we train new musicians for music ministry, as Rick does for care, this, this idea of ministry training really has been at the heart of that. I mean, it's frankly why guys like Mike and Bo are in the room, because you know, we're, we're recognizing this. I think, I think the potential is what would it look like if, if we scaled this? What would it look like if every person in, just in this room 
uh, over the next year or two years. And then you blow that out to another group of teachers. I think we're right on the edge of now being able to see this fold over into second and third generations. And I think that's where you can really start to see. Because the temptation, I think, after you spend a meeting like this, okay, what programs can we start for newcomers? And really, it's who am I going to train? That's it. And, uh, that's the difference. And it's, it's hard to stay committed to that because that's hard and, and, and it's slow and it's a little painful at times. But what would Old North look like in 10 years if this started to, to, to play out? More? What would Canfield look like? There are ideas. Yeah, you have to take the long view. That's yeah. right. Hmm. So Mike and Bo are blokes worth watching. <laughs> well, they're not bloke well, kisses. <laughs> Actually, if they get voted in next week, we should get them plaques that say It means the leadership of the church is not necessarily the constituted legal membership. It's the pastoral, it's those who do the work of training other blokes. They actually wind up leading the church because it's it's it, and therefore the word of God actually starts to lead the church rather than the elective representatives. It's, it's a different model, you see. Yeah, and I think that distinction that that Ted you brought out, kind of in dialogue with Philip, is very helpful for us. And there's a there's a big difference between teaching and training. Yeah. And that I think that's an area where we need to grow in. But if the training happens without that big box around there of teaching, you'll go off the rails. I think right. as, we, if, as we sit under teaching training, okay, if I, if I like Nick's style of teaching, but I might not like Nick's style of teaching, okay, because this fits better with me. That's the kind of way I like to get in front of people or talk or whatever. How do we choose that. What is the correct style of teaching? Yeah. I mean, we have many teachers. We yeah. have several in this room right yeah. here teach on Sunday morning. Yeah. And, uh, and they're all different. Yeah. Different styles. Yep. Yeah. The, the good, it, it's, it's, um, it's two things. One, you've got to teach, you've got to train people in the basic strokes. You know, you, you're training someone to play golf. Uh, you've got to keep your head still. <laughs> huh? Do not look up. You've got to keep your head still. You've got to learn to cock your wrists so that you can, right? And so there's certain basic things. But you look at any two good golfers and they play differently. So the good coach not only shows you what the basic orthodox stroke is, he also helps you develop your style rather than say, no, no, you must do it my way. Right? So the maturity and skill of the coach is to be able to show you the, the basics that are necessary while encouraging the individualism that is you. So there are two ways to live. We get people to learn it off by heart. But if people share the gospel by reciting these, these, this catechism, it lacks any kind of spontaneous hum humour, nature. It's just not a normal relationship. You just don't recite things to people. You've got to learn how to turn that into your own words and your own way of expressing it. But if you start off with individualism, they wind up sharing the, not the gospel, but all kinds of strange things that they think about. So we train them in the basics. You know, you think about how you trained your kid to play baseball, how you've trained them to play tennis, any skill. 
you train him in the basics, but then when you see that, well, he's actually a left-hander and he does it differently, you know, you say, well, why don't you go from this angle? I would never go from that angle, but so you're left-hander, so why don't you go from this angle? Kind of thing. But that's, that's maturity and training. I think. I think that, I know for myself, teaching in uh, men's Bible study early in the morning, and I've co-taught with another teacher. Yep. And that works good too because then we can kind of critique each other. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That critiquing each other is really important. After he taught, I taught, we go, yeah. what I, could I have done differently? Or? Yeah. Let me show you two ways to live to get the idea of how how um, how uh, the gospel presentation I'm talking about. Philip, can I say something like, yeah, go for it. to address back to Rick's question? Because I think that's, whenever I've gone through this model, you talked about... Rick, is this? No, Rick, uh, over Thank here, you. when you talked about people who have problems, yeah. that's the one that always people leave and have a little bit, you're not quite sure yet. But this model that you just erased uh, is actually the most loving thing for the people with problems because it trains people who are mature Christians to help them with the gospel to, treat, to deal with their problems. Yeah. And to follow them up and to love them where they're at. And, and we need more people who are trained in ministry, more self-starters to do that. So this is actually the best way to help people with problems. It's just a long, it's just, yeah, anyway. The more people, that you, the more problems you deal with in prayer and Bible groups, the, the, the better the church functions, frankly. So, you know, you're in a group, what do you call them? Home groups. Small, small groups. Small. You've got a group of 10 people. And one person's got a problem. Nine Christians helping them is better than the pastor having to spend his time doing it. Now, if the problem is deep and profound, well, they need professional help. But that generally is send them to a, a, a Christian counsellor rather than expecting the pastor to be looking after it. Because he's got to look after the big thing and the quality control throughout it. Two ways to live is a simple thing. You draw this on a piece of paper, on a napkin in the... Uh, uh, at the uh, coffee table and you say look let me explain Christianity to you in six simple ideas right? Uh, God will represent him as a crown I'm a hopeless drawer so please forgive me I'll explain what these things are just in case but anybody else could make it sensible you draw, see God is the ruler of the world, he made the world and he made everything in it and he made man to live under his authority but that's not how you see the world today. Because man has choosed to rule his own life, his own way, rejecting God as his king over the world. But we no longer rule over the world as we were supposed to. The world is out of control in so many ways because we choose to run our own life our own way rather than God's way. What will God do about this? Well, God will not forever tolerate our rejection and rebellion against him. And... The judgment that comes upon us is, is whoops, is death. Those toes are not turning up quite right there. Uh, is death, you see. The judgment is death. Now, in each of these we can put Bible verses in. Revelation 4.11 uh, You are worthy to receive all power and glory because you have made all things and they've come into being. Uh, Romans uh, 3.10-12 All have sinned uh, and rejected God. Uh, Hebrews uh, 9.27 It's appointed unto every man to die once and after that the judgment. But that's not all because God in his love has sent into the world a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us. And so we go for 1 Peter 3.18. He died to bring the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. But that's not the end of the story either because God raised him to new life so that now Jesus, because that was Jesus, now Jesus rules over the world as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who rules everything and brings new life to his people in 1 Peter 3, whoops, 1, 3, uh, that you're born again by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which then presents you with two ways to live. You can live as most people, as all people want to live, that is, under their own authority, but they are facing certain death and the judgment of God. Or you can now rule, live under God's new ruler, Jesus, and then by submitting your life to him, turning your life over to him, you'll have eternal life. And there is John uh, 3, whoops, John 3, 36. Uh, to everyone who believes in him has life, and those who do not believe in him remain under death, under, under the wrath. Right? Now there's a six-point doctrine series. Right? Oh, I've taught creation, sin, judgment, Atonement, resurrection, repentance and faith. Without a lot of the jargon, don't use the word sin. Talk about rebellion. Don't talk about creation. Talk about making. Because uh, if you talk about creation, you get sidetracked on huge discussions about evolution. Now, they might be good discussions, they may be bad discussions, because you're not going to reach Jesus. You know, all the time we'll be taken up discussing fossils. And, yeah, fossils are interesting, but frankly, it's not Jesus. So, and if we use faith... People think we mean superstition. So we talk about submitting your life to Jesus, trusting Jesus, something like that, as, as language. So all the language has got rid of Christian jargon and got rid of distractive language so that we can get the gospel. But by me saying there are six things, it means I control the conversation. And by drawing it out, I can actually, uh, I can actually refer to different bits. So... Towards the end, we say, which of these best represents the way you live? And then we ask, which one of these represents the way you want to live? Now, if I live this way and I want to live that way, let me show you how to become a Christian. If I'm already living this way, well, that's fantastic. How come I never see you in church? You know, what makes you think you're living this way? Nearly everybody says, I want to live somewhere in the middle. And we say, ah, that's because you haven't understood this. Let me go back over this one again. Because there is no middle ground. You're either for God or against God. And so I can control the conversation and keep it on Christ and the gospel by being able to draw it out on a piece of paper. So we have a printed version, but we don't give out the printed version. We train Christians to know what the gospel is in this simple catechism. All right? That, that's what Two Ways Ministries, Two Ways to Live is all about. And there's the program. And then we train people on how to use this by going down to shopping malls and trying it out. And, and those who will do it publicly, they, when they get into Christian conversations at work or you know, with their neighbours or their, their cousin, they just know how to do it. But even if you don't use it publicly, it means as you preach the Bible you'll hear the theology of creation or atonement or resurrection and you can filter in that piece of information to fit into the structure. If this structure is wrong, you're misleading the whole church. (laughs) So you've got to make sure it's right.
I'm curious. I like this concept, and I was going to tie Marty into you know, one notch to the right. Is it another way to phrase this? Would it be when I meet somebody, I put them in one of the boxes, I assess where they are, and in, then I try to move them to the next box? Yeah. In discussion, that is the case. Yes. Okay. So it's not so much I put the person in, as I put what they say. Yeah, where they are. Yeah. Okay. So a bloke saying, "Oh, look, that's Syria. You know, I mean, that's just dreadful. The world is disastrous." Yep. I know that because now we're running our own life our own way. We're not in control of the world. Okay. Although he's saying it's disastrous because he knows deep down it should be under control. So he's indicated he has an assumption of number one <laughs> and he's seeing number two, but he doesn't know why it's like it is. So I can explain between one and two and I'm away in a gospel run. I would think if, if he doesn't know that, you know, that like the box four is Jesus, I, I yeah. pulled something out for some man who dies for rebels, if he doesn't yeah. understand that, I can't move him straight to box six. No. I've got to take him through there. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. All right, thank you. We're going to be running two ways of the training for our summer Bible study. We decided that last night. We had 100 people in our church. Philip did this last night, and it was such a good response. We just, on the spur of the moment, said, so June, July, we're going to run two ways to live mm -hmm. uh, at our Wednesday night Bible study. So just mark that down. Hmm. Chris has run it before, good, good success, so um, yeah, it's, it's time that we do it. We haven't done any evangelism training since I've been here, formally, across the church. So and It's helpful for a lot of reasons, if what we're talking about now is one of those. That yeah. it's, it's, it provides several entry points into a gospel conversation, and then you can circle back and give yeah. a more robust picture. But now, if you teach it in your Sunday morning class, that's good, but the key is then, to actually train some of the people in it yeah. by actually saying, well, this is really good. How about you and I go out and yeah. try it Sunday afternoon down the park? Yeah. So we're going to get you guys to sign up for your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't put me up to that. That was his... Uh, I'm not going to own that. question on... You covered this a little bit last night on cold evangelism. Yeah. I'm real good at talking to strangers. Oh, I like you. Yeah. But... <laughs> what I wind up doing are short conversations. What I wind up doing is kind of question them and ask them and find out if it just kind of open the door, the door a little bit. And maybe all, a lot of us do this. Is we wind up inviting them yep. to come to the church that we attend yep. so they can learn more because I don't yeah. have time to mess with you right now. I'm, only, yeah. I'm having dinner. You're my server, but you seem like a really nice guy. Yep. And then we drop them and then it. Yeah, on, on a short conversation, I don't have time to do this. I'm going to say, why'd you go to church? But this enables me to stretch out a conversation with people. Someone starts to show interest. I said, look, I could show you this in just 10 minutes. Just you got 10 minutes because I could just spell this out for you. And my aim is not so much to get them to church, but my aim is to say, well, look, would you like to study the Bible with me? I can show it to you in greater detail. Why don't we meet next Thursday? So I, I want to do personal event now. If I get him to church, that's good. That's wonderful. I mean, I'm, any step I can move them <laughs> is a good step. But the best step is to actually start meeting with them one to one to continue studying the Bible. And so that's why we've got these other courses available to follow up from doing this. But this gives you the big picture in which to slot information. Now, people think differently. But there are some people who like to think by putting all the, the blocks of information in and then see the picture. But most people like to know what's the big picture 
Now let me try and find the bits that fit in. <laughs> so how do you do a jigsaw puzzle? Do you do your jigsaw puzzle with the, the box picture in front of you or do you like to throw it away and just do it? I like the box in front of me because I know where to put the pieces. Well this gives me the box. So then when I start hearing sermons of the rest, I can say, ah, I, I, yeah, I see where that fits. And to get all your congregation having that kind of a big picture, that's really helpful for them. But in terms of evangelising others, it helps. There's a lot of, I guess I can just say, it, there's a lot of fear involved in that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, some people are a lot better at it than others. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm hopeless at drawing. You know, and I'm not real good at memory work. Yeah. I'm curious. Uh, obviously, you put this into practice and you've used it for a long time. Yep. Um, what are the relationships like amongst the congregation? And what are like the divorce rates and stuff like that? Are the people much closer together with one another? I mean, sometimes you come in here, you, you just don't know who's sitting next to you. Are, are people get together and knowing each other much better, like in that loop, or is it still? You, you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm not sure I can. I can answer it helpfully. Now that is, I was the pastor of a, a university church for thirty years, and there was f a great de a degree of. Uh, close friendship, fellowship, 18 to 25 year olds, they hadn't faced major problems in life yet, they were, they, the wheels weren't falling off at that stage, and there was a certain uniformity of young educated people. So although people came and went all the time, there's always newcomers all the time, the relationships were very positive and, and, and easy to establish. I then became the, 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 the Dean of a Cathedral, which is the other end of the spectrum, where uh, people are there for all kinds of weird reasons. I had people say to me, I, I asked them, why do you come to the Cathedral? And they'd say, well, because when the Queen comes to Sydney, this is the church she goes to. You know, now that's a really profound reason for going to a church, isn't it? I mean, the people are there for the craziest of reasons. You have that same problem. I thought you would. And so you... You're kind of, in that context, no, you never knew who you're sitting next to. Now, in the first context, so, I mean, your context is your context. <laughs> uh, this kind of work helped in the cathedral because it meant the partners in the cathedral, when they sat down next to somebody whom they didn't know, had something to say and <laughs> something to do with them. Uh, this helped the uni church because we all could work together on the same mission because we all thought the same way. I'll give you another model to try and help understand it. That is, it's a fairly common model. No, it's a fairly common experience that you're talking of. Um, uh, this one's called camp. Do you use the word camp to talk about homosexuality? Someone's very camp? Nope. Good, well then I can speak freely. Uh, this is the camp one, which is a very, very detailed model. It, it operates uh, basically like that. Yeah, I'm glad I spent all those years in art school. Uh, there are contexts, there are attendees, there are members, there are partners. So within any church, you've got these kind of four grades of people that are involved. 
Most people think that they'll grow the church by getting more of the contacts. When in fact, it's the other way around. You grow the church by increasing the partnership. Stopping people just being sitting there as members being served. Increase the number of partners. Because when you've increased the number of partners, you're able to drag in more attendees. And it's the attendees who have the contact with the contacts. So, that, so you actually start here rather than start there. Now different churches have different profiles. So the uni church where I was at had a very big partnership and a very small membership and uh, not a very large attendance either, but we had a lot of contacts because the university every year produced another 10,000 people for us to talk to. <laughs> so a lot of contacts. The cathedral on the other hand had hardly any partners a certain number of members and a huge number of occasional attendees, right? And not many contacts. The contacts were tourists who turned up because <laughs> we were right downtown in Sydney, so there was no natural place, natural group to eat. Now, the two profiles couldn't be more different. <laughs> and the work in the cathedral was to try and turn these members to push out and... So instead of just two or three people welcoming the attendees, we'd have 50 or 60 people welcoming the attendees. Instead of having just two people who administer someone beside them, you'd have 50 or 60 people who would be able to sit down next to an alcoholic or whoever it was that came off the streets and talk to them. Right? But that just means this church wasn't as developed as this one. But given the sociology, this one was a lot easier to develop. <laughs> You know, or undergrad. If you can't get undergraduates to do something, pack it in. Yeah, you know they've got no problems. You know they they're not forty. They don't have kids. They're not even married. They don't have a problem. Uh, whereas that church was just full of problem people. Well, a couple of people mentioned the problem they've seen in having members who are quite content just being members. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to make the point that. When you're teaching them, you're not you're not just trying to shape their conviction, you're just trying to shape their character. Yep. Part of character is love for others. And so at that point, if you're not pushing them on to serve others with the word of God, you're not actually helping them grow. You you may be growing their convictions, but you want those convictions to shape their character. And one of the one of the phrases we kind of used a bit is that the, the word of God doesn't terminate with me. The word of God has to grow. And so if those people are just sitting there soaking it up, in the end, you're not happy. You need to push them on. Um, but it may be, it may not start with, let's do two ways to live course together. It might be, how are you going to share this truth that we've learned tonight with your family, with your kids, you know, when you put them to bed tonight? Or it may start with little things. And then, you know, how could you perhaps share what you've learned in church this morning with your work colleagues? When you, when you they ask you, how was your weekend? What can you teach them about what you learned at church? It just starts with a small step, setting up that culture that the word of God that I'm learning is for me to, to share with others, mm. not just to uh, One of the men I respect most is a missionary down in Argentina that we trained many, many years ago. Is there, he, he talks about the Swedish method of Bible study. Have you heard about the Swedish method or something other? What's it called? Yep, Swedish. Swedish, which has a lot of that kind of... You don't, the Bible study doesn't terminate because we've reached the end of the time or the end of the chapter. It's got, I've never done it. I've never used it. But if Peter Blouse says it's really helpful, 
You know, if I was now at the point of learning how to do Bible study groups, I think I would spend time looking into that, which does that kind of thing, doesn't it? It's, it the Swedish method is, is a, a way of reading the Bible together, which is a, a little more flexible, and, but uh, it's not quite what I was saying. It's not quite what you're saying. Okay, thank you. Yeah. You know, I'm not sold on one thing. <laughs> huh? This is what we did. You're intelligent men, by the look of you. Especially him, he's really intelligent, you know. <laughs> you're intelligent, man. You've got to work out how to do it, do what, where you are. If what I've said is a help, well, praise God, that was a night worth doing. If what I've said is a distraction, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's nice to meet you. Philip, the most, the more, um, in my short, short experience in ministry and time here, um, the more I see people um, struggle with competency, the more it comes really back to character. Character and convictions. If, if we teach in the Bible to transform us to love people more, they will then figure out a way and come to me and say, I want to reach my neighbor, but I, I just don't know how to do it. That's, that's what happens, and that's why I generally just go back to always character forming from the gospel. Mm. And I think that's kind of what Ian was getting at, mm. is that we always, yeah, all behavior, all behavioral missteps or problems is back to belief issues. That's right. Once they know, once your congregation members know you've got a resource like Naomi and all the others, it can help them with the, the confidence and the skills and the resources that he knows of that can help them do what they want to, now naturally want to do. Yeah. But getting them to that point where they, it's, it becomes, they become self-starters. They want to do stuff. They're looking for opportunities. And that's why the model breaks down because, it, you know, they're not all, the self-starters are not all going to go back into your neat little flowchart They'll find other ministries. They say, "Ah, oh, I could do this," um, and your, your, the whole system has lots of leakage everywhere, which is fantastic. Hmm. Well, and we have we have you know a fair number of self-starters already in our church, but they're not self-starters that have been trained along with <laughs> either mm-hmm. the gospel or what what gospel ministry in this context actually looks like, and so they do things like let's start a parachurch organization or they do things like um, hey wouldn't it be great if we hired a helicopter and dropped 10,000 Easter eggs in the property and a big Easter egg hunt and, and things like that and, and they think that that is um, them self-starting ready to go Yeah. when really they're talking about something completely different <laughs> yeah it's not working together Right. and this is where the critical work of the pastor in teaching the Bible to the whole congregation lies, because that's where the convictions should be framed from the pulpit, right? Uh, Across the whole board. And it's from the convictions you get the character. And as you grow in character, so you grow in convictions. Those two feed each other. It's a feedback system, convictions and character. And when they are operating, then you can look at the competencies. Because, right? you know, a man who, who's got the gospel heart like that and who's living it out, you know, you're the man to do the Easter eggs. <laughs> gospel blimp. I want a question about a little circle thing up here. I think, and maybe we're not unusual in a, in a church, but I see us as a church with members who come and play golf, okay? Yeah. Half of them come and play golf on Sunday. Um... I don't know what the other half does. But not very many of them in the middle there come and help clean up on the greens and stuff. Okay? They just don't. Yeah. Very, very low percentage. Yeah. 
So how do we bring that together where I like the idea of talking about partnership yeah. and not membership? Yeah. It's training in ministry is the step. Yeah. That's the key step. Back to the training. Yep. yep. You gotta take them aside one by one and say, come on, how about you clean the greens with me? I'll show you how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And uh, now, can I say, you're swimming against the current of your culture because America is a consumerist society like almost nowhere else on earth. And so the idea, I pay my money and you do the job for me, is just second nature. I think it comes with your mother's milk, doesn't it? And so to actually say, this is a volunteers organisation, not a pay for organisation, is something you can hear with your head, but your nervous reaction is to reach for the, you know, and tip people for doing things. So it really, it's countercultural at a very deep level to get people away from membership they pay for to partnership they're active in. But it can be done, must be able to be done. You know, the word of God will do it, prayer will do it. I mean, that's, that's where we're heading. Because, yeah. That's where the course of your life is trying to It's revolutional. I think people, so they actually aren't consumers yeah, and that's a Matthias Media course that I haven't We've written. We've all just done Course of Your Life together with the Liga. spouses. There you go. That's what it's about. Thank you. You're all ahead of me because I've never done it. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> ah, I believe you. I believe you. It's published by Matthias Media. It must be. <laughs> it's up by seven brothers. Do you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to stand here all... By 745. Okay. Okay. Whatever you like. All right, well, let's, let's bring it to a close. Guys, any final questions or thoughts? It's very stimulating, Philip. Appreciate it. Do you want to do an Uluru for five minutes or you don't? I'm happy. What's that? Uluru for five minutes or not? Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah? Do it. Okay. Sure. What? Uluru. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what... <laughs> Who knows what Uluru is? <laughs> Who can tell me what Uluru is? There you go. Yep. Right in the middle of Australia is a massive rock. So this is a self-diagnosis of Old North, by the way, in five minutes. Yeah. Uh, is a big rock, which used to be known as Ayers Rock, but is now known by its Aboriginal name as Lularoo. It is so big it can be seen from space by the uh, spaceships. I mean, it is an enormous big uh, monolith out in the middle of nowhere, right in the plonk in the middle of Australia. And what it does is it acts as a model for me in explaining in self-diagnosis of a church, right? That is, over 25 to 40 years, over a generation, so to speak, years, over that time, a church will grow and decline. So you start a new church, it will grow, and then it always plateaus slightly on the downhill till it goes to decline. Again, it's not just churches, your local Boy Scouts will do the same, your local soccer team, kids soccer team, will do the same thing. Uh, in fact, even suburbs do this over time too, you know, young families move in, build a thing, 40 years later their kids have moved on, they're getting old, they move out, the thing changes. That's just how, how things work, right? And there is a line of viability. Uh, which is a critical element because when you first start you're not viable. Uh, you've got to find resources to put in, you've got to borrow big whatever it is to be putting in 
and then it becomes viable and you can continue to grow. There is some kind of growth dynamic as to why your church is growing and the one down the road doesn't when it's preaching the same gospel. There's more to it than just the message you're preaching. I mean, it'd be wonderful if the growth dynamic was just the gospel, but frankly, it's not. It's got to do with other things. Because one gospel church, another gospel church, this one's growing, that one's not. Why? You see? And it's because, well, this is a new suburb, or because this has got a new minister, or because this has got a great youth program, or a children's program, or there'll be something that gets it growing. And as long as it's growing, what you've got to do is keep resourcing it. You've got to just keep pouring more resources into this because, and, and maintain the integrity of the growth dynamic. However, nearly all growth dynamics have built into them the law of diminishing returns. So over time, it will, it will shift. So you start a great children's program that become great teenage program and then they leave and go to college. <laughs> and so it just, it, it plateaus. But also usually in the elders meeting, the elders decide wrongly. They say, let's play for safety rather than risk. Now, if you play for risk and you get it wrong, then you don't have this long thing, you just go straight down the gurgler, right? But if you pride you're not making absolutely stupid decisions, gurgler, that's not your decision either, I'm sorry that word, um, but you get the gurgler's on a matter peak, isn't it? You know what it means. Um, uh, but when you go for comfort and say, oh, rather than let's put on another evangelist, let's keep our money in the bank. Right? Well, you've just made the decision to plateau. <laughs> that, that was, it was a good decision for safety, but a bad decision for... And so you can always tell a church which is on the plateau because it's got a good bank account. And that's where it lives. And what you've got to do in that kind of church, if you ever want to grow again, is you've got to reform the church. Because not only is there a law of diminishing returns, there's a law of homeostasis given this pastor, this building, this suburb, this way of running church, this kind of children's program you've got, you'll be a 1,000 member church. <laughs> to change it, you've got to change one of those elements. Right? You change the pastor, or you, you build a bigger car park, or you build a bigger uh, meeting hall, or you, you've, got to, you've got to do something, some reform, to get off the plateau and uh, start growing again because there was some reason why you hit an obstacle there instead of overcoming the obstacle you accepted it and then just accepted what you were right? and so reform reform is very tricky very tricky because you've got to rightly analyze the problem <laughs> and remove it or be creative with something new and when you're up here you're viable you look successful, you look effective, you know. The classic one is 80% full. When your building is 80% full, you don't grow any much more than that. And when a building is 80% full, you look successful. The fact that there's 50,000 people outside who are not coming, you don't notice because you've got, you know, 600 people in your building that hold, or 800 people in your building that holds 1,000. So you look successful. And so you, you rest on your oars rather than saying, okay, well now let's build a bigger building which you get a lot of money, a lot of aggravation, a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain, or let's start a new service, or let's... You've got to do something, because otherwise you'll just sit on 800 for a while, and then 750, and then 700, and then 600, 500, and in a little while you'll have a big empty hall. When you, once you turn the corner, 
then it's no longer reform. What you've got to do then is to reinvent the whole thing. Now, if you think that's painful, this is agony. <laughs> right? The worst church is the one that sits there because they've still got enough resources to look successful. Success is a totally stupid concept at this point, but that, that's what they think. And so they don't, they're not willing to reinvent and they're past reforming. <laughs> So you really are in trouble in that phase. And generally, people won't allow you to reinvent until they're down here when they've got nothing to lose anymore. Right? Now, different ministers are good at different things. You know, I've got one bloke who every time I see him, I put my hand on a wallet because he's always grabbing some resource from me. He just, he just can't help himself. He's just the greatest, we call them bludgers, that you've ever met. He just borrows, begs, but he just gets things out of you. He's just terrific. And he can plant churches and grow churches all the time. This, that subtlety, to be able to keep the church up in numbers while changing it at the same time, sounds to me that's where you guys are at at the moment. When you talk about transitioning, I heard yesterday, it sounds this is where you're at. This work, well, this is where bomb droppers come in. You know, and that, that's where I enjoy. I'm, I'm a reinventor. You know, there's scrap everything, let's start again. Uh, but that's painful, but that's all right. I, I like playing in, the, in, the, in that part of the world. Now, uh, if you don't reform, you will die. Right? The plateau is deceptive. It's, it's got a death wish in it. Now, you can look at it in just in terms of age. You know, when you're born and you grow up to be a teenager, 21, you can do everything that you ever can do. From there on in, it's a slow slide down, isn't it, that the rest of us have? Because death has entered in at the height. <laughs> because you're at the height, you don't realise you're dying. But you are. That, that's what's happening. Um, now, there's a way of understanding. How do you know where you are? Well, you need to look at the statistics, not from last year, it's, it's, uh, it's, not that, uh, it's not that fine detail. You've got to look every five years and compare 10 years ago with today and 20 years ago with today. Because we're talking a 40-year kind of span that we're talking about. So if you want to know where you are on the spectrum, on this kind of Uluru model, you need to go back and look at how many children were in there, how many were in Bible study groups there in, in I keep forgetting your name, in small, group. small groups, how many people were actually attending services, how many people used to come to the annual conference or something like that. Uh, what was the, the money, you know, how, where was the money five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and so on. And you can diagnose fairly accurately what happens. With changes in minister, often what you see is it drops down a little, it kicks up a little, and then it goes back to homeostasis. And so I, I analysed 250 churches across Sydney, and I could pick just from the statistics of attendance when they change minister. Because you'd see these little wobbles, <laughs> and then it'd go back to where it was. Now, if I've understood you correctly, you didn't do much dropping in the change in minister, but you have got the new minister, and this is a great moment to do reform. <laughs> But you've got to catch that moment, because if you don't, you'll be back where you were. Right? So, my intuition, pure intuition, is you're a plateaued church with a new minister. But you've got to check that intuition by the numbers. I, I, I haven't seen the numbers. I've only, 
I've been here one day. How would I know? But you have all the signs of it. You've got a lot of resources. It looks comfortable. You've got good numbers there. You're well above the viabilities, I would assume. I mean, I don't know your bank accounts. I don't know where you're up to, but you seem to be well above the... But it, you're still looking for where, where are we going, what's happening. And I, I couldn't see what the growth dynamic was that's going to make you... You didn't have the... Your church was too neat and tidy to be a growth church. When you're in this spectrum, you never have enough money. <laughs> you don't have any money in the bank. And you always have mess. There was no mess yesterday. Now, I don't want you to be messy, but you know there are, there are just signs that this is really straining with more people than we know what to do with and where we're going. Well, I didn't see those signs. I saw the signs of a church which is comfortably on the... But I didn't see them over here. I didn't see you declining. <laughs> but I didn't see you up here. I, I hope I... Yeah, well, I, I hope you're, I'm wrong, you're there. And I hope you're wrong, I'm wrong, that you're not here. Right? But if you are here, then this is the magic moment with a new pastor as to how you can, you can reform. I believe you're going to like, assess those correctly. Okay. But check the figures. So check the figures. I think that the, the models that we were talking about a couple of moments ago, certainly, they certainly play into reform. Yes. Or are part of reform. Yes. They constitute reform? They will constitute reform in terms of quality reform, yes. And long-term will lift, but, sh but you don't have long-term. If you're already here, you don't have long-term to do it. They're not in themselves a growth dynamic. Yep. Uh, they're, they're more about closing the back door and improving the quality of the product than finding where the new door is. Somebody mentioned earlier, Cutman, which, you know, when I drew the first of those models, you know, is there another box as to where you get newcomers from? Uh, yes. That's the, that's the growth dynamic. I don't know whether you've got the growth dynamic here, which you've got to go find. Um, you know, I didn't think the building was so full yesterday that it was an obstacle to growth. I didn't think the car park was so full that it was an obstacle to growth. You know, so what, what, why is we not growing? Well, as an Australian who can't understand your culture, um, you know, we, we pretend to speak the same language, but actually, culturally, we're a long, long way apart. Um, I can't understand why there's such a large church on the outskirts of a town. You know, this go everywhere by car is so different to how we operate. And so, you know, the children in Sydney walk to the local church. Well, I don't think there's any footpaths to walk along, let alone have the children, let alone you thinking that the ones just in the next houses are your concern particularly. Just, so I, I don't understand. So I don't have to understand. You guys have got to understand, haven't you? <laughs> Well, You've been very patient with me, friends. Helpful, and leave it up there because we're going to talk about that after you leave a little bit more. Okay.